0: Well, this morning we come to our last message in our study of the gospel according to Mark. The 43rd message in Mark. I don't know how you feel when we come to the end of a sermon series, but as a a preacher, it's always bittersweet for me. It's sweet in that it's a small accomplishment for all of us, I suppose. Hopefully we get a book more now than we did before we started. Presumably, God has worked in various ways throughout our time in a a book together, but coming to the end of a series is also somewhat sad in that I get very comfortable in the book. This is like a a great worn-in pair of slippers. You get to know Mark. You're familiar with Mark, and he cuts. He does. He convicts, yes. He instructs, for sure, but to be familiar with his ways is, is a comfortable thing. So it's always a little hard to let go of one book and move on to something new. And maybe that explains my rather clumsy ending to this series. In April, we were coming to chapter 11 in the book of Mark, and we were also coming close to Good Friday and Easter. And so I had what I thought was the brilliant idea of fast-forwarding Mark, getting to chapter 15 for the cross, chapter 16 for the resurrection on Easter. We already know what's coming. We know what's ahead. We'll just jump ahead. We'll do that on Good Friday and Easter. It's out of the way. And, and what I didn't foresee is that that means we have to end the series with Jesus' trial, which isn't very fun. You don't want to end the trial and say, well, you know, well, that's it. <laughs> uh You know, go back and listen to a message from four months ago if you're interested to read more or hear more. No. Uh, So we didn't do that. We have instead, at the risk of redundancy, gone through those chapters again, even though we did them four months ago at Good Friday and Easter. Last week we looked at the crucifixion in chapter 15, and this week we'll look again at the resurrection that follows. I pray that the resurrection of Christ is not too familiar to you. I pray it is never a redundancy, never something we're used to hearing or, God help us, even bored with. So let's hear it again with wonder and awe and joy and faith. Starting in verse 40 of chapter 15. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, Took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, "'Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?' There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling in astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Perhaps it's fitting that my ending to the series in Mark has been a little perplexing or confusing, because Mark's ending in the Gospel According to Mark over the centuries, has been confusing or perplexing to many Christians. I talked about this briefly on Easter Sunday, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit more at length today. I stopped reading just now at verse 8 purposefully. I think that's where Mark put down his pen. And your Bible probably alludes to that somehow, either in the text right after verse 8 or in a footnote or in a margin. It'll say something like, verses 9 and following are not in the earliest manuscripts. You might ask, manuscripts? What are these manuscripts? Well, the New Testament was written down by men who were carried by the Holy Spirit, we're told in 2 Peter 1. So men wrote what they thought, what they remembered, and how they would write it, and yet superintending their writing, the Holy Spirit was guiding it all along. We call that dual authorship. Now, we don't have any of the originals that these gospel writers wrote, but we have thousands of copies of New Testament documents or manuscripts, handwritten copies. Kids, this is before cutting and pasting on your computer or forwarding to someone. It's even before faxing. It's before copies and mimeographs. Uh, there was just handwriting that went on. And so one would make a new copy of Mark, for instance, by copying one that they had gotten or seen and, and making another copy. Archaeologists, as I said, have found thousands of fragments of these manuscripts. And uh, they're finding more all the time. The manuscripts are not totally consistent with each other, but they are remarkably consistent with each other. The Bible has more manuscript evidence, and the manuscripts are more consistent between themselves than anything written by Plato, or Aristotle, or Herodotus, or Julius Caesar. For 99% of our Bibles, we know what what the original author wrote. For the 1%, we can't be as sure as the 99%, but we can be pretty darn sure. Even if some Christians disagree about whether something should be in there or not. And Christians do disagree. I was just showing someone in between services. I have a book. uh, Four views on the ending of Mark. So there are other views than what I'm telling you today, but I think the view I'm describing today is, is right. The ending of Mark. Verses 9 and following are in some manuscripts, but not the best manuscripts, not the oldest ones, not in most of them. Eusebius, a fourth century historian, he knew of a longer ending to Mark, but he'd never seen it. He didn't have any manuscripts of it. He said he believed it ended with the women were afraid. The same with Jerome, the author of the Latin Vulgate, about the same time as Eusebius. The King James Version in 1611 included this longer version to Mark, and so English Bibles since then have always included that section, even though most have some sort of comment that, well, that cautions us, that makes us at least be aware that this might not be from Mark. We're not exactly sure, or sometimes they even word it more aggressively that this probably isn't from Mark, it isn't in the earliest and in most reliable manuscripts. The language of verses 9 and following in Mark 16 is different than what came before. If you can read New Testament Greek, you're reading along in Mark and you get a feel for 16 chapters of what Mark is like, what his syntax is like, the words he uses. You get to the end here, verses 9 and following, and it just feels very, very different. There are 18 new words that weren't used before in Mark. And the longer ending teaches some things that aren't anywhere else in the Bible. Like being protected when picking up serpents, verse 18. Or when drinking deadly poison. That isn't anywhere else in the Bible. That should at least uh, give us some caution. Now some would object and say, it's such an odd ending to the book if Mark ends at verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. The end. That's abrupt, they say. That's clumsy storytelling. It's either clumsy or it's brilliant. It's not usual, though. I googled this week, how to write an ending to a story. There are websites that give us advice on how to write endings to stories, Mark follows none of their advice. He breaks all the rules. But Mark has been breaking literary rules all the time. All through Mark, remember he's putting immediately all over the place, immediately they left, immediately they did this, immediately they ate some fish. I don't know if he says that one, but there are a lot of them like that. He's an abrupt writer. Uh, Even his beginning, his intro was very abrupt. It's not even a complete sentence the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a great beginning. It's the title, but it's abrupt. In Mark's telling of the Jesus story, there's no birth story unlike the others. Mark's in a hurry. He's in a hurry to tell us something. He's in a hurry to get us to the cross. Some might object that if Mark ends at verse 8, and Mark doesn't include any appearances of Jesus to the disciples. He doesn't include a great commission passage. And the other three clearly end with a great commission passage. Well, yeah, but Mark was likely written first. So no one told him that he was breaking precedence. The precedent hadn't been set yet. Now, either way, however you think of the ending of Mark, none of this, should cause us to lose confidence in our English Bibles. In fact, this is the Christian way. We embrace evidence. We take it on. We don't sweep it under the rug. We deal with it. We talk about it. We try to work it out. We think through it. We know that we don't have a book that floated down from heaven and was stashed in a mountain in upstate New York. We know that. We don't think that Crossway Books got the ESV from Michael, the archangel. We know that. We we know about manuscripts. We believe in translations. It's an imperfect science dealing with these manuscripts, an imperfect science dealing with translations. But the perfect word of God is very darn well captured in these English pages that we have. So we shouldn't be troubled even if we learn of another one. Like, for instance, did you notice last week, chapter 15, verse 28, anyone with an ESV or NIV want to read chapter 15, verse 28 for us? Just go ahead. Read it out loud. The rest of you are not looking down your Bible, so you have no idea where this joke is going. It's not there. There is no 1528 that's not even put in the normal text, unlike the end of chapter 16. So we come across these things here and there. Acts 8.37 is another. We shouldn't be alarmed by them, though. No Christian doctrine is lost in one of these debatable passages not being included or considered inerrant, inspired Scripture. Well, okay, enough of the nitty-gritty on Mark's ending at verse eight. We'll come back to the ending at the end of the sermon. Uh, We'll think more about how this kind of ending teaches us, what it communicates to us, but I wanted to get the nitty-gritty out of the way so we're not dealing with that at the end. Let's go back to the beginning where we started reading. Chapter 15, verse 40. Here we see the first of six points that we'll work through. The the women's gaze. The women's gaze. Verse 40 tells us there were also women looking on from a distance. That is looking on the cross, looking at Jesus crucified upon the cross. The male disciples are not mentioned here. Back before Jesus' arrest, they all insisted that they would not desert Jesus when the going got rough. Jesus said they would. Peter all the more insisted on his commitment to Jesus and willingness to die for him, despite Jesus telling Peter that he would deny the Lord and deny any connection to him. But the disciples did flee. Peter did deny. None of them came for Jesus' trial where witnesses, whether pro or con, would have been welcomed. None came for his trial. They were scattered. They were cowering. And none of them, in Mark's record of it, are here at the cross. They're someplace else. But the women are there. The women are there watching from a distance. They had ministered to Jesus in his ministry. They cared for him clearly. But now they could do nothing. How mind-numbing must that sight have been, what we saw last week. The anguish, the cry, the sky darkened his last breath, what pregnant words they must be that they were looking on from a distance. The threat is so great that they have to keep at distance. But their care is so great, they couldn't bear to leave, even over six hours. Secondly, we see Joseph's request. Joseph's request. We're introduced to a new character in the story, Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 43 tells us he was a respected member of the council, that is the Jewish council. That is the council that just condemned Jesus to death and handed Jesus over to Pilate for crucifixion. We're told in one of the gospel accounts that uh, this Joseph of Arimathea wasn't with them on that. He was against that idea. We're told elsewhere that He was a righteous man, a good man. He was also rich. John tells us that Joseph was secretly a disciple of Jesus. We're not sure what that looks like exactly, but he was secretly a disciple of Jesus. He was pro-Jesus and perhaps not public about that even until this very end that we're reading about here in Mark 16. And here in Mark, we're told that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Much like Simeon back in Luke 2, at the the presentation of Jesus to the temple, remember that, Simeon we're told was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and then he saw it in the baby Jesus. Anna, the prophetess, had been praying daily for 80 years in the temple because she was waiting for the redemption to come, and she saw it in the baby Jesus. So, Joseph was of this type. He was of God's people in a way that the Pharisees that we've been reading about and the chief priests and the elders weren't. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He was watching, he was waiting, he was looking to welcome it. And that's what Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God. That's what he announced at the beginning of his ministry. He was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' parables in Mark are about the kingdom. He talked about entering the kingdom. He talked about how you have to become like a little child to enter the kingdom. That kingdom is the realm of God's rule and peace and fellowship. And we enter that kingdom by believing on the news of Jesus' death as a ransom for our sin. Now, we don't know how much of that Joseph of Arimathea understood, but we understood that he, We understand that he is pro-Jesus. He's looking for the kingdom of God, and he's certainly painted in a good light by all these gospel writers. Whatever kind of faith he had, whatever degree of faith he had, it was an act of faith. He did something. Verse 43, he took courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus so that he might give him a proper burial. It did take courage. Remember, he's a respected man of the Sanhedrin. He was siding with Jesus by asking for the body for a proper burial. It means he is not siding with his fellow councilmen. He had everything to lose by publicly siding with Jesus in this way. It was risky to even approach Pilate with this request. Most executed, treasonous criminals were left on the cross to die there and stay there without burial. The birds would come and pick them apart for days, and they would be left on the cross as a warning to any who were tempted to trifle with Rome. And yet Joseph of Arimathea, he went and asked Pilate, and that could be, Interpreted by Pilate as siding with Jesus over Rome. Yet Pilate, in his typically wishy-washy way, he only wants to make sure that the body is actually dead. So the centurion testified that indeed Jesus is dead. He breathed his last. He died quickly, at least as far as crucifixions go. Six hours He hung there alive before he breathed his last. Once again, we should pause to think about who isn't here in this story as Joseph of Arimathea asks for the body so he might bury him. It was typical in these days for family members or friends to ask for a body for burial if it was granted. It would be family members or friends, close friends, who would ask for the body for burial. Jesus' disciples are nowhere mentioned here. Just this secret follower who may not have really believed much in Jesus until the very end or maybe didn't go public about it until the very end. He's the one burying Jesus, not any of the 11. In Mark 6, we read of John the Baptist's disciples. After his execution, they came and they got the body and they buried buried John. Disciples of Jesus are not following suit. With this Joseph of Arimathea, though, it's time for him to go public if he hasn't. And this deed of putting him, Jesus, in his tomb, of him caring for the body like this, this is going public with siding with Jesus. Have you ever done that? You ever gone public that you are with Jesus and he is for you and with you? It takes courage, there can be risk, there are things you could lose, but if you're looking for the kingdom of God like Joseph was, then you should look to the king, you should look to the king. Take a good look at Joseph here, he was looking to the king as best he knew how in this confusing weekend he found himself in. Verse 46, Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now thirdly, we come to the women's care. As the end of chapter 15 comes, well, as it comes to an end, we're returning to the Marys. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid in chapter 16, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Three times were given these ladies names. Three times they're mentioned by name when they look upon the crucifixion, uh, when they saw where he was buried. And as they went to Jesus' tomb. These are real people. These are eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus, to the death of Jesus, to the burial of Jesus, and as we'll see in just a few minutes, also to the announcement of the resurrection of Jesus. They were likely still alive and still available to testify once more to Mark's readers if they had any doubt about whether this was true. They are the first and some of the best witnesses. But they are surprising witnesses. We point this out most of the time when we come to the resurrection scenes and note that the women are the first and best witnesses. It's surprising because in this day and in this culture, which was predominantly misogynistic, in this day and age when women weren't allowed to testify in a court of law, It's surprising that these women would be witnesses, but that's of course part of God's plan to confront that wrong view of women, to use them as the key witnesses to it all. But that also points to the veracity of it, the truthfulness of this testimony, because if you were making this up, you wouldn't insert the women here, not in this context. As the first witnesses, and hence the ones who saw it first and told others about it. If you were making up a world religion about Jesus with Him as the object of worship, just think of how many things would be different as you wrote it up than what they did. Everything. There'd be no cross, there'd be no execution, there'd be no opposition, there'd be no abandonment by the disciples at that critical hour. There'd be no repeated abject failure on the part of the disciples to get what Jesus is saying. You wouldn't have the women as testimony. And you wouldn't have the women likely going to the tomb that Sunday morning to care for a decaying body. Because if you hold on to this thing that Jesus had been saying all along that he would be killed and would be raised... It seems like they don't get it. and They don't know. They don't understand. They're going to the tomb that day not expecting an angel. They're going to the tomb that day not singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. They don't know it's the first Easter. They're probably not wearing white shoes. (laughs) They're going to the tomb like it's a funeral dirge. They're going to the tomb expecting to find a ravaged body that is decaying now, has been decaying now for two days. They carry their spices to the tomb that early morning. They seem to be reeling from all that's taken place, still stricken stricken with grief over the death of their beloved Jesus. It's only as they get close to the tomb that they realize that they They haven't planned for how to roll that giant stone away from the entrance of the tomb. It was very hard to roll into place, this giant disc-like stone. It was even harder to roll it out since it would lean against it for gravity. and Very hard to roll it away. But imagine their surprise when they arrive at the tomb and the stone was already rolled away. Verse 4, looking up. They saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And imagine their greater surprise, even their shock, when they peer into that tomb. Entering the tomb, verse 5 says, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now we come to the, the angel's announcement. Fourthly, we see the angel's announcement. Mark doesn't say that he's an angel, but surely he is. Mark calls him a young man, but he's, he's dressed in a white robe. And we all know from TV shows that's what angels wear. They wear white robes. No, I, I, that's not my reasoning here for thinking he's an angel. We think he's an angel because the other gospel accounts have an angel or angels making this announcement of the resurrection to various people. Like angels do, he's making a heavenly announcement. He's coming with good news. Like that angel in Luke 2 who announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds. The angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This angel in Mark 16 has come with good news of even greater joy. Jesus is not just born. He's not just a sacrifice for sins, but he's raised and he lives forevermore. So he said to them in verse six, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Everything is just as he told you. In Mark 14, verse 28, Jesus told them, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's why the angel said, just as he told you, you will see him again. You will meet him in Galilee. Jesus also talked about his coming rejection and his coming resurrection many times over. The biggest ones being chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, clear and plain predictions of both the cross and the resurrection. He told them at one point, chapter 9, verse 1, that most of them wouldn't die until they see the kingdom of god come with power i think that refers to the resurrection because they wouldn't die it's not referring to the second coming they did die they've died long ago but no they wouldn't die except judas before they see the kingdom of God come with power. It was right after that that Jesus went up to the mountain and was transfigured before them, a foretaste of his coming resurrection and glory. Jesus was dropping hints left and right about his rejection and also his vindication. He didn't just say the the resurrection would happen. He implied what it meant and how it had to be. Remember how he identified himself with the Son of Man from Daniel 7. That Son of Man in Daniel 7 would be given an eternal kingdom and will reign everywhere forever and ever. Jesus identified himself with the suffering servant of Isaiah. And yes, the suffering servant would suffer and be a sacrifice, but he would also save and be satisfied He'd be successful. So Isaiah wrote, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Or as Isaiah wrote at the end of the previous chapter, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. We saw last week that Jesus identified himself with that suffering king in Psalm 22, the forsaken king of Psalm 22. A king who, yes, would be scorned, who would suffer severely, but a king who believed he'd be rescued, who'd be delivered, who would be vindicated. And that's what the resurrection in part means. His claims are true. The payment was made. The kingdom now has come. The king's ransom has been paid. The promised one died to save. And he is satisfied. So now we come to the end of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the resurrection means the kingdom is come the king is here. This is all very very good. It doesn't just mean he's alive or death didn't win or the bad guys didn't win, but he showed them something so much more is going on in the resurrection of Christ. New Testament scholar NT Wright, he says that the resurrection is a peak into a whole new creation. The resurrection of Jesus, he says, offers itself not as an odd event within the world as it is, but as a prototypical and foundational event within the world as it has begun to be. It is not an absurd event within the old world, but the symbol and starting point of the new world. Jesus of Nazareth ushers in not simply a new religious possibility, not a new ethic, or a new way of salvation, but a whole new creation. Jesus said, after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And the angel said, tell his disciples, he's going before you to Galilee. Why Galilee? Why Galilee? Well, it was Jesus' headquarters throughout his ministry it was also the hometown for many of the disciples. For most of them, it was the place where Jesus called them to follow him and where he told them that he would make them fishers of men. He's calling them back to that place. But interestingly, Galilee is also the centerpiece and focal point in Isaiah 9. It is the headquarters in Isaiah 9 of God's latter time glorious ways going forth in this world with a son to come. Listen to this. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. And then it goes on to cover these familiar Christmas words. Over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Starting in Galilee. First starting in Bethlehem at his birth. Then through Jerusalem at his death. Now back to Galilee. Did did Jesus have Isaiah 9 in mind when he talked about a reunion in Galilee? I don't know for sure, perhaps. But even if not, what he's doing is regrouping the scattered sheep. They had scattered, and now he's regathering them. He's also restoring them, restoring them to fellowship. Remember, they insisted they wouldn't flee, and they did. No testimony at his trial. None coming for the body and giving him a proper burial. Peter especially needs to be restored to the Messiah that he three times denied. And that's probably why the angel singles him out and Peter. Together they must go to Galilee. And he's going before them. And the angel says, there you will see him. You will see him. Again, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and it should make us want to leap through the ceiling with joy or or stand in awe in silence or feel convicted perhaps that we're used to this, we're familiar with it. It's a given, we know. Sometimes we may doubt it, other times we don't. But what else, what else you got? I know Jesus was raised on the third day. I know it's pretty important what's for lunch. Well, the women don't have either of those kind of responses to the resurrection. Neither elated joy nor indifference. Fifthly, we see the women's fear. The women's fear in verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The angel said, don't be afraid. They got more afraid. The angel said, go to the disciples. They went someplace else, anyplace else. The angel told them what to say. They said nothing. Apparently, they couldn't get it. They couldn't comprehend it. This idea of resurrection must have been so otherworldly to them that it was petrifying to their souls. For this moment in time, they're like other people earlier in Mark who observe something of the glory and power of Jesus, and they're terrified. Like the disciples in the boat in chapter 4, In the storm, about to die, Jesus calms the storm with a word. And it says, they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Like those in chapter 15, the townspeople who had been plagued by this one, possessed with a legion of demons, terrorizing their town. And yet once Jesus healed him and he was sitting there clothed and in his right mind, they were even more afraid. They asked Jesus to leave. They were less afraid of a man with a thousand demons than they were of the man who could vanquish a thousand demons. Chapter 9, verse 6, when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain, Peter said something stupid because he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. These women are doing the same thing. They're astonished, not in a good way, but in a bad way. And for this moment in time, they're like those who've come before. They don't get it. They couldn't handle it. For them, a resurrected Christ was scarier and more problematic than a crucified Christ. Now, we know from other gospel accounts that these women did not remain in hiding. They didn't remain silent. They didn't stay afraid. All those things eventually get turned upside down and inside out, whether it was a few minutes after verse 8 or, or a few hours after verse 8 or whatever the time. We know there's a happy ending to the story. And the first century readers knew it as well. They knew these women, they knew the story. They'd heard it if they hadn't read it. But Mark doesn't include it. Why? Why end like this? They said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. So lastly, in your outline, let's talk about Mark's abrupt ending. Why does Mark end like he does? Let me suggest a couple of reasons. For one, I think this is actually a quite fitting ending to Mark's passion account. Passion's the stuff at the end that leads right up to the cross. And for Mark, that's chapter 14 to 16. That's Mark's passion narrative, we sometimes call it. Chapter 14 begins like this, with a woman anointing Jesus unintentionally for his burial. That's what he says. Chapter 16 ends with women coming to anoint Jesus at his burial unaware that he doesn't need any anointing at all. He's already been anointed. I think that's some clever storytelling there. Also, Mark's abrupt ending creates a fork in the road for us readers. I think it implies something like a kind of So what about you? To the readers. His abrupt ending calls for a quick response. They were afraid. They said nothing. They went and hid. Being afraid, hiding, and staying quiet are temptations for Christians in every age. Whether it's Mark's first readers in the first century who were under the persecution of Nero in Rome or even for us comfy Christians in the 21st century America that we live in, we fear, we often hide, we often stay silent. But the resurrection, whether for them or for the first readers or for us, it should jar us out of fear, jar us out of safety. It should jolt us into gospel exuberance and gospel proclamation. The gospel, Jesus said, must first be proclaimed to all the nations. It had to start with those women telling the disciples that Jesus is alive and what they should do now. Eventually they did, but not at first. We should learn from that. Let us do it. Let us speak. Let us tell what we've been told to tell. We Christians read... The glory of the resurrection being told in verse six and seven, the angel's grand announcement of Jesus being risen and alive. It thrills our souls. Then we read verse eight and we can't believe these women are afraid. We can't believe they fled. We can't believe they didn't tell. Well, we're often afraid, we're often fleeing, we're often remaining quiet. Are we living in light of the resurrection as we should? None of us are. Are you at all? Are you at all? Reflect on last week. What was not in light of the resurrection? What was a disconnect between he is risen, he is risen indeed, and this or that thing? What about next week? What about next year? What is disconnected from the reality of Christ's resurrection? Or do you think that the disconnect between your life and the glorious resurrection is a chasm so insurmountable that grace cannot, cannot fill that gap, cannot bring you back to him? Well, then just look at these women here. Look at these women. They didn't do anything the angel told them to do. They did the opposite every, in every way. And we know the rest of the story. We know who they are, what they came to believe. We know the story continues and it continues still today. The fight continues to believe and to to keep on believing. I love when we sing that song, why this fear and unbelief? Has not the father put to grief his spotless son for us? And will the righteous judge of men Condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross. Jesus, all my trust is in your blood. Jesus, you've rescued us through your great love. We sing, be still, my soul, and know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have brought you liberty. Rely then on his precious blood. Don't fear your banishment from God. Since Jesus sets you free, he sets you free to go with him to Galilee or wherever he would call you. He'll go before you. He'll be with you. You will see him. And as we go, let us believe it. Let us receive it. Let us live in light of it. And let us tell that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God and its king have come. We all must repent and believe in the gospel, the good news that Jesus is a ransom for the sins of many. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, our friend, our King, Jesus. We thank you for his life and for his death, for his sacrifice and for his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that he is indeed vindicated. We believe that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Christ to your glory, Father. We pray today would be a day where some in this room would for the first time confess. We pray for those in this room who haven't yet confessed, and we pray that they would before Christ returns, he will come again. He is righteous and he is just and he is holy, not just nice, helpful, or gracious. And he will one day have a reckoning. He will return one day either for our eternal redemption or for our eternal ruin. And we pray for those in this place that it might not be to an eternal ruin, but today, a day of salvation that leads to an eternal redemption when Christ comes again. Lord, give us boldness to speak of such things. Help us to be like those disciples who, when threatened in acts, they couldn't help but speak the things they'd heard and seen. Help us to be like those who, it's noticeable, they had been with Jesus Those first disciples had been with them physically and literally, but may it be so that we have Jesus on us and it is noticeable to people that we've been with him in prayer, in his word. Glorify your name in this church, Lord. Glorify your name in this neighborhood. Glorify your name, Lord Jesus, in this city, in this region, in this world, for your namesake, because of what you've done and because you're the risen king. Amen.